0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AIF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in.
1: On this episode
0: of the AIF Exchange, we will continue our discussion on the economic impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with Douglas Holtzakum. Doug, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure, Kyle. Good to see you. Another week here in August. How are you holding up? Oh,
1: doing fine. Can't complain.
0: I always feel like it's always extra fun here in D.C. during the August. It's, we're almost through it, and hopefully we'll get back to more news next week and the weeks after.
1: You know, I mean, it's there's always a lull late in August in D.C. Um, you know, it's the exception when, when you see Congress working and things happening. So, that you know, there's a lull this year, no question. And that lull is much more exciting when there's absolutely nothing to do. It's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the, that's the real fun part.
0: Um, so the big news of this week, of course, was the uh, Republican Convention. Um, throughout the week, the president and his allies have been discussing their vision for the economy and the country as a whole. You wrote earlier this week about the recent lack of policy focus on the private sector. Specifically, you asked in in your dish, who's going to defend the private sector? With everything else going on, why is that important right now?
1: Well, we're we're seeing a very very large scale government intervention because of the recession, you know, the pandemic recession is an enormous downdraft. We've talked about that. There's been an enormous government response. That's appropriate. I I, I really don't have any problem with that. But there has to be a vision for how the economy operates post emergency interventions, post um, recovery from the pandemic. And I, I I know what the vision is on the Democratic side. It's it's a a highly government centric. Um, enormously large-scale interventionist effort, and typically, I would expect the Republican National uh, Convention to be a place where you heard the the counterargument, the the things I tried to point out, which is that um, if you look at the rise in material wealth in the world, uh, it coincides with the Industrial Revolution and the arrival of market capitalism. Now, material wealth isn't everything; I acknowledge that, but uh, the capacity of private sector driven market oriented um, economics to bring people uh, a better standard of living has been an unprecedented event in the history of the globe. And the the bringing of um, literally billions of people out of poverty um, is an extraordinary accomplishment. I don't hear anyone defending that. Um, I I hear instead on the current Republican side of a comparably statist industrial policy driven you know, we want you to take your plants out of China. We want you to be protected by terrorists. We want you to change the way you do your business. You, the post office, need to charge Amazon more. That—that That is nothing like saying, here, you have the freedom to pursue your hopes and dreams, and we know that the country will be better off if you do. I mean, that's a, a completely different view of the world. So both, both sides right now have this very top-down, statist uh, approach to things, and that troubles me. I'm not I'm very happy to see that.
0: So, yeah, my follow-up question was going to be, have you heard a defense this week for the private sector from the traditionally pro-market GOP?
1: But it sounds like you really haven't. I really haven't. And um, in, Indeed, this has been a very disappointing convention from a policy point of view. Now, now, I just want to stipulate conventions are political events. They're not, they are not, let's get the nerds together and discuss, you know, broadband policy. That's mm-hmm. not, it works. <laughs> I, I get that. But, but, um there's a tradition of there being a Republican Party platform. There's a platform committee. There's a serious process for debate over what will be the platform and the policy principles that the party will support, and they didn't do that this year. There is no Republican Party platform. Well, was that was that a strategic move, or was that just because COVID was
0: happening? COVID nineteen is happening, and so you can't really do a full on convention.
1: Uh, I don't see any reason why you couldn't have done via. Teams or Zoom or whatever your favorite um, video conferencing service is, um, a discussion of what the platform would be. Instead, they essentially said, we had one in 2016, we'll do the same thing again, and, and let's move on. And that's unfortunate, because um, it's not 2016, it's 2020, our problems are different, uh, the, the kinds of things that we should support are, are going to be different, and, and I would have liked to have seen that debate. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's say that you were given a slot at the debate or at the convention to to talk about this debate. You know, briefly, what would you, what would you have said? What would have been your core message about defending the private sector?
1: Uh, the the only way you can defend the the private sector is to try to make sure that in all dimensions the government doesn't expand to to push it out. Um, the Trump administration. Uh, says a lot about its um, approach to regulation and, and deregulation in particular to sort of keep that burden small. And and there's a lot to be said for that. We've discussed that at, at, at length um, at AAF. But there are a lot of things where they're, they're intervening in, in the private sector, wh- whether it's social media and the content of that policy, whether it's location decisions for pharmaceuticals and Buy America and... All sorts of very interventionist things, and and I'm troubled by those, and I don't like this that see that trend, um, you know, sort of develop. So, like, make the case that that's not desirable. That that there's a big difference between not in China and you have to have everything in the U.S. We have allies all around the globe, we, and we can diversify supply chains and be secure, and life life would be good. So, that's a, a market-oriented approach that that I would support. I'm particularly worried that. There's not a word about how we will deal with the unsustainable budget deficit that we had going into the pandemic. We will have when we come out of it and the debt will be worse. If you do not deal with that ever increasing gap between spending and revenues, you're inviting either uh, an economic calamity, which I don't think is, is really the logical outcome, or much, much higher taxes, uh, much much higher disguise tax in forms of regulations. So, instead of saying, oh, Medicare will pay for this, they'll just mandate that the private sector deliver it. Either way, the government's going to be very, very big. There has to be a plan for maintaining a reasonable-sized government and the freedoms to come with it.
0: Mm-hmm. What forces are out there pushing policy uh, policymakers, to constrain the market? I mean, is it just COVID-19 right now, or is there something else? And are those underlying concerns valid in your view?
1: so the there's been big push uh, on the democratic side toward the the progressive wing. and and that's a that's a wing that essentially says the government is the answer for all your problems. like the the private sector is the enemy in many cases. It's a very extreme view of the the world that I don't support. Um, you know, we've seen proposals like the Green New Deal, which is nothing short of using the government as a tool of social revolution, cultural revolution. Uh, and an enormous expansion of what the government does—it's just it's astonishing. So, you know, that—that's been out there. That's a that's that's pushed, um, sort of centrist kinds of Democrats left. It's pushed traditional liberals even further left. Um, on the Republican side, there's the the populist wing that you know is basically saying, "Look, we don't like any large institution. We don't like businesses. We don't like governments. We don't like anything." Um, I, I want my stuff i want you to take care of the little guy and let's go beat some people up to do it it's a very negative uh type of politics and and the white house embodies this in, in many ways it's it's who can you be upset with and angry at and and that works in politics like in my you know brief interlude in electoral campaigns um nothing works in politics like fear and anger um in the moment that that moves people and and i acknowledge that but you have to deal with the aftermath and if you've made people fearful and angry, uh, that's a dangerous recipe. So yeah. we're in a tough moment and, and it's it's not a moment where it's easy to stand up and say, you know, uh, the Constitution had some real real merits and the founding fathers had some some good ideas when personal and economic freedoms were the core thing we, we tried to pursue. And if we pursue that again, we will be fine. But mm-hmm. I believe that to be true.
0: Fair enough. Um, before we leave this topic, have you been following the convention at all?
1: I, I've, I've followed it minimally. Um, it starts too late for me. I mean, good grief. Um, uh, so you know, I, I'm 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 more in the mode of reading the the transcripts of speeches and sort of watching things on uh, uh, clips the next day than, than sitting up and watching it live. So have there have, in, have there
0: been any high points in policy related conversation or any low points in in your
1: mind? I I think, honestly, it's largely a tie. I mean, this is a um, policy-free convention in many ways, as was the Democrats, right? Um, Weirdly, um, we are seeing two cults of personality-style conventions, right? This one's all about Donald Trump. He's a great guy. He's the only guy. Please re-elect him. That's the basic message. The Democrats' uh, convention was, Joe Biden's a great guy. He represents all Democrats. Let's unite and elect him that those are political sort of events and, and the policy content's pretty thin. Was it
0: was it like that back in 08, when you were briefly in electoral politics? Was so it like that?
1: I, I ran the platform committee efforts um, for the McCain campaign. And you know we wanted to make sure that uh, the Republican party, when it adopted its platform, didn't adopt a lot of things that were at odds with where the candidate had been. And there were some places where they weren't perfectly aligned and that's fine. You know adults n- need to agree to disagree on things um but that that consumed a lot of time and energy at the, at the convention and it was taken quite seriously and it just uh, it's a different world right now mm. yeah we do seem
0: far away from that 08 campaign um but moving on there have been a, there was a survey out i think it was in in an article i read on monday that the national association of business economics that said the u.s would be out of recession in late 2020 or early 2021. Does this sound optimistic to you? Does it seem
1: right? That seems about right. Um, You know, I think we've been through this background before, but the official dating of of when sessions start and end is done by the National Bureau of Economic Research, a private uh, not-for-profit institution. Um, It has a business cycle dating committee, and the NBR was started because there was a wager between a capitalist and socialist about the nature of inequality and unfairness back in the early 20th century, and it turned out there were no data. So they invented the NBR to collect data and find out. And um, it's, been, it's been doing this job ever since. Uh, it it usually sort of waits until the dust has settled and then looks back and says, yeah, it started in March and it ended in whatever. Uh, in, in this instance, they've announced already that, that the US economy has entered a recession officially and they dated the the, the high point in March and since then it's been down. Um, my guess is we're going to see, uh, you know, a, a third quarter GDP report, which is um, uh, going to show positive economic growth, and the fourth quarter with a positive economic growth, and somewhere out there in late 2020, they will say, "Yeah, we're out." Um, and this will turn out to be an extraordinarily sharp, short recession—the shortest probably ever, mm-hmm. but but one of the most um, pronounced recessions—and it will take us, you know once you're out of the recession it means you're growing again. It doesn't mean you're back to where you were when it fell and it will take a while to get back to where we were in early 2020. Right, well, and you also wrote about a double dip recession. What did you find? Well, I, I've been disturbed at the sort of presumption that there's going to be a double dip and that that it's it's imminent and that if Congress doesn't, in fact, make a deal with the administration, pass another stimulus bill, the economy is gonna go negative. And let's all be quite honest, it could. I mean, there, There's nothing about forecasting the future that doesn't guarantee you're going to make a mistake occasionally, but but certainly given what we know at this moment, that seems far from the walk to me. Uh, We have uh, two regional Federal Reserve banks, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, that engage in essentially real-time forecasting of the current quarter's GDP growth. So in the third quarter of 2020, they take all the data that gets released they look at the relationship between those data and GDP growth historically, and they use it to forecast what current quarter GDP is going to be. So I look at those forecasts. The Atlanta Fed's called GDP Now, and the GDP Now forecast is 25.6% growth annualized in the, uh, in the third quarter. That's far from zero and not a negative number. So that's not a recession. Um, the New York Fed is smaller, 14.6% annualized, but again- still well above zero so what we know about the data and current conditions on the ground do not point toward imminent downturn they point up and up at a rapid pace so at an annualized basis the economy fell at a 32 percent rate in the second quarter going up at a 25 14 to 25 percent rate in the third we're getting some fairly sharp snapback that's good news Mm -hmm. um so there has to be something else people are worried about like could it be that if you don't pay the ui the 600 bucks that there'll be enough pullback in spending that you guarantee a recession. Well, there could be a pullback in spending. And and there could be a substantial impact on a particular section of the US population. There's no question about that. I don't want to minimize that. But it doesn't look like it's big enough to guarantee that we go negative again. Um, You know, my guess is we will continue to grow uh, with or without uh, a deal, hopefully with, in which case we will grow better. And that'll be important. But you know it will not be immediately back to happy times it will, it will be steady hard work pulling out of a deep recession and and that's that's the next couple of years for the us
0: mm-hmm. i was going to ask you about if, if the federal ui supplement would impact the economy in a negative way but are there other things that that congress hasn't dealt with right now that could also lead to that double dip recession
1: you know, the, the, the we like conversation about the state and local governments and the, the, the trouble they're in and if they start pulling back on the provision of services and, and laying people off, that's an unquestionable negative. Uh we, we talked about sort of trying to get a, a sense of the magnitudes involved there and it's it sure looks to me like there's more money that would that would be merited, not zero, some more, not a trillion dollars, you know, somewhere in between. Um you know, the 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 key things on the supply side, you know, it's not just cash, it's it's getting people to work, getting customers to go out, getting business o- owners to open, keeping some businesses alive, and we're losing a, a large number of businesses. So, you know, there are things that the Congress can do to improve the outlook, and I think they should do. And it's disappointing that they can't get to a deal. But But my m- reminder is really the reminder that there are mechanisms by which economies recover from recessions on their own. Those mechanisms are still active in the US economy. We will recover from this recession. Policy simply helps you recover more quickly. And that's beneficial because you want to minimize the suffering that people uh, go through. But but it doesn't mean that without the policy, you never improve. Right, I just right. think that's overstating it. Okay. There
0: was news yesterday that if a relief measure for airlines, that it will expire soon. And a number of observers uh, are expecting some layoffs there. First, what impact might those layoffs have on the economy and second what do you think is the likelihood that congress will extend additional aid to airlines in the next relief bill if quite
1: frankly quite frankly if there is an next relief bill at this point so on the um uh the, the magnitude of the layoffs uh the numbers that were reported in the press were 19,000 jobs at american 1900 roughly pilots at delta we lost 20 million jobs in april so, by the scale of the economy and things, this is bad news, but it's not dramatically bad news for the overall labor market. It's 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 bad news for that sector. Um, you know, as far as supporting the airlines, you know, I've made the case um, repeatedly, and not to everyone's satisfaction, that airlines are special in that they are part of the part of the supply chain that they, along with trucking and and railroads and other parts of the transportation network do deserve special attention because the success of other businesses depend on them continuing to to fly and so having a complete shutdown would be a disaster and i think that's what the cares act avoided right we're not going to do that um they provided them with grants um those grants are made on the condition that they keep their employees that runs out october 30th and that's what we're september 30th and that's what we're starting to see um there is an important question about whether you do that again and i think the answer probably is no because they got $25 billion in grants and cares. They got $25 billion in loans. None of those loans have been made. Like so there's $25 billion in a figurative bank account at the Treasury for, for the airlines. And if there's an airline that needs access to some cash to continue to operate, the Treasury can provide it to them on terms that the Treasury can set. And I, you know, I don't understand why the Treasury hasn't gotten more money out, both for that and for other purposes. Um, I think they should, but it's there and I don't think Congress needs to do more. You know, keeping the planes flying doesn't mean you keep them flying on the same schedules with the same capacity that you had before. That might have included a ton of business travel and a ton of recreational travel. That's not happening right now. So paying for excess capacity doesn't make any sense. Paying for the capacity you need to fly the goods and services, that's what you, you should make sure it happens.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember a few podcasts, probably way back in the beginning of our podcast episodes, you mentioned, you know, the airplanes have the cargo underneath. And I actually didn't realize that myself. But that seemed I mean, it's an obvious important That's part cool. of our, our check a bag, they don't want your bag, <laughs> yeah. want more valuable cargo down underneath there. And it makes more <laughs> sense why some of these airlines charge you more for, for checking a bag. One final topic I did want to get to today before I let you go. There have been reports that COVID-19 has led to a significant drop in global trade. What does this mean for the U.S. economy and what, if anything, can we do to mitigate this impact?
1: Um, th- there's been a, a sharp decline in global trade and with the arrival of the pandemic. And uh, this is bad news for all economies, not just the U.S. economy. Uh, trade is good. Um, people forget that because it sort of has a bad name right now, but trade is really good. Trade is the reason that I can eat because I do podcasts, and if I can't trade that using money for food, it's very bad. All I have is podcasts, and you, you can't it's not a great life. So if I can't trade with people who who provide you know wine and food and lodging and and you know thing, clothes and all that stuff, my life's immeasurably worse. So the very act of trading is the way we we both benefit. And that's true for for domestic trade. It's also true for international trade. It's more complicated with international trade because we have entities with currencies called nations and, you know, it gets, it gets more complicated, but the big picture thing of trade being beneficial is still true. And we're, we're losing out on some potential benefits with the, with, with greater trade, we would see all economies rise a little bit faster and, um, you know, trade will recover, uh, as the pandemic diminishes, um, that'll help the, the economies grow more rapidly. It's sort of a, a, a beneficial uh, cycle there, uh, not putting more barriers to trade, I think, is the key at this point. We've got enough problems. Do not erect tariff and other non-tariff barriers to trade.
0: I couldn't help but notice that the first in your list was, uh, of course, wine. Um, <laughs> I don't
1: know how that happened, honestly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. um, any fun plans for this weekend?
1: Uh, we have the usual just um, uh, gauntlet of wine tastings to get through. It's just it's, it's a horrific um, burden that I bear. Um, Tonight uh, we're we're doing a tasting with the Thomas Fogarty uh, Vineyard, um, which is uh, in California, and and last Thursday featured fires. Um, they they were deeply threatened by the California wildfires, so I believe they've dodged a very serious bullet, and we'll see them tonight with, with less smoke around them. So that's that that'll be a good thing. And then um, you know this weekend, hoping hoping to to see some old friends for a socially distanced drink in their backyard. I'm not sure Hurricane Laura is going to um, uh, cooperate with that plan. So we'll find out.
0: Hopefully the weather holds out for you there. Doug, thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.